0: You're listening to the Sexual Wellness Sessions with Kate Moyle. Today we're going to be discussing the topic of love, but from a slightly different angle, which is from an evolutionary perspective. And I really wanted to have this conversation with my guest, who is the amazing evolutionary anthropologist, writer and broadcaster, Dr. Anna Mackin. And the evolution of love is a really fascinating topic for me, because I'm constantly thinking about how narratives about love have changed, social contexts have changed, the world has changed. It feels like everything has completely transformed since we were cavemen. But also that there's, we see mating behaviours in animals. And it feels like We're trying to apply lots of principles that are historical to modern love. And Anna has studied the science of anthropology behind our closest relationships with lovers, friends, family, pets, celebrities. You're also the author of two books on love, one of which I absolutely adored, which was The Life of Dad, The Making of the Modern Father. And is a book that I recommend actually to lots of parents, not just dads. And then your new book, which is called Why We Love the Science Behind Our Closest Relationships is out this year. And I guess for me, I think something I was saying to you earlier was, I feel like in lots of interviews that I do, a lot of the, the question often comes up, Everyone's like, but aren't we biologically driven for men to do this and women to do this? Isn't that just evolution and we can't really fight it? And I guess as a evolutionary anthropologist would you agree with that do you think that it still stands does it not i mean i feel like let's just go in (laughs) the deep end (laughs) yeah can i give the
1: men a get out of jail free card no um (laughs) uh, humans are really really complicated we're obviously at our basic levels we're animals and we're driven by the same processes and drives as animals But on top of that, we are much more complex, because, Mm. partly because we have, particularly in the mammalian kingdom, a rare thing called investing fatherhood. So we have men who stick around to look after their children. So that's one thing that impacts that question. And the other thing that impacts us is we're hugely conscious. Mm. So while we have these unconscious drives, um, we also have this amazing thinking and reflecting mind, which can override your biological drive. So... It's not a case of us just saying, well, men are driven to cheat, um, you know, and women are driven to sort of stick around and look after their kids. It's not actually that straightforward, I'm afraid. Um, So you have to look at that complexity, I think. Um, And actually, both men and women cheat. They just cheat in a slightly different way. So men tend to, uh, we were talking about this year before before we started recording, men obviously have that free thing where they can sow their seed as widely as possible. Um, and therefore, in a way, they are less choosy about who they might necessarily cheat with. Women are restricted by the fact that if they become pregnant, that's it for nine months. Mm. So they are much more restricted in terms of who's going to be the father of their child. So they tend to be not, not sort of the scattergun approach. Um, They tend to be very, quite choosy about who they will uh, be unfaithful with. And they actually tend to be unfaithful with men, if we're talking about heterosexual relationships, where the the affair partner is actually more attractive than their partner. And the reason for that is if they become pregnant by that person, and it is an unconscious drive, they're not consciously thinking about this. First of all, they're probably not going to get any investment from this a fair partner Mm. so the only thing they're going to get is good genes hopefully for their kids so good genes are reflected in in levels of attractiveness for example based Mm -hmm. upon symmetry okay so they will maybe choose somebody who's more attractive than their partner and then they will rely on the partner to actually do all the investing so that's what we tend to see in patterns of women cheating in heterosexual relationships but actually it's a bit of a myth to say men are these rabid Monsters that run around trying to have affairs with everybody. Um, actually, particularly when we look at fathers, because they get this massive drop in testosterone when you have when you become a father, mm. and testosterone is the thing that drives you to look elsewhere.
0: Mm.
1: Testosterone is the hormone of mating, um, and actually, it drops in fathers because we need them to stop looking for the next partner. We need them to invest in the family, so actually, it drops quite dramatically by up to a third. Mm. So, um, actually they're not necessarily this rabid uh, sex, as it were, that's running around. You tend to see actually more individual difference between people than you do between the sexes necessarily in terms of the rate of cheating.
0: Mm. When I read that in The Life of Dad about the testosterone drop, I was absolutely fascinated by it as an idea because it was something that I'd never heard before. And... It seems so interesting to me. I think that people love to hold on to those theories and we have such gendered messages and narratives around sex and love anyway that I think it helps people to frame where they think that they might come from as well. And we hear a lot about how women emotionally connect in order to have sex and men don't need that. But I think I see quite a lot of difference around that. And I don't think that I always agree. And I think that actually a lot of those narratives can be really unhelpful for people. And we see that particularly there are these messages around that men always have higher sex drives than women. And then when you have women in, again, heterosexual relationships who have higher sex drives than their partner or want sex more or desire sex more than their partners, then they feel there's something wrong with them because it's, inverted commas, meant to be the other way around. And so I think that for me it's, very interesting that we keep going back. We're always looking back to discover the answer, which is why I love that you explained it in that way of the the cognition, the social element, the developedness of us as humans being able to override. And I think that's the whole nature nurture debate, isn't it? But I think that in your work, you describe the nature of your work being that you're examining this idea of being human. Do you think that love is the most human thing that we can do, feel, experience? Is it? Does it show up differently in animals? Because we see that some animals are monogamous, don't we? But it's not love in the same way. Love feels like a very complex thing a social thing
1: yeah love is interesting because love in humans has two dimensions it has the biological dimension so what are the biological drivers of love but it also has a sociological dimension which is the cultural that's where gendered ideas about love come from so we have those two inputs and I try to sort of straddle both of them particularly in the book because I think Mm. you will only understand fully what human love is if you look at both of those dimensions in the past i think authors and scientists and completely understandably because it gets terribly complicated um have tried to give like a single answer to the question what is love and there isn't a single answer because it's Mm. so complicated so i think what i say about love it doesn't make us human because there are other animals who experience love and they arguably the higher some of the higher animals experience love to the extent that we do without the cultural element of it. You know, they're not writing poetry or singing bad pop songs and that kind of thing. But, you know, in terms of what they're experiencing in their body and what they're reflecting upon, if we look at things like the the dolphins, the whales, possibly the higher primates, certainly looking at elephants, for example, Hmm. they experience a a profound experience of love. And I would say it's on a par with human love. Um, Why I think love is, but I do think love is possibly the most important aspect of being human because without love you are not going to get very far in your life love evolved because we required it for our survival it underpins all our survival critical relationships and if you don't have healthy good relationships with your carers when you're a child with your lover you know with your own children going outwards with your family and your friends then we know that that ultimately impacts your mental and physical health your life satisfaction your longevity it is the most important factor in those aspects. And we've got a really tight body of evidence now showing that. So it's it's more important than sort of adhering to all those healthy lifestyle messages. But actually, we know that if you don't have that healthy social network with, with love at its core, you're not going to get anywhere. And even in those very early years, you know, particularly children, first two years if you don't have secure attachments to your carers, if you don't grow up in an environment which is loving and nurturing and meets your needs, mm. then we see quite significant developmental issues which are lifelong in that child. So it is it is at the core of being human and it comes from the fact that we have to cooperate. We have to cooperate to survive. And cooperation is really, really hard. Mm. It's really hard because we all know getting along, you know, even with our own families and with our partners and with our kids, some days you're just like, I literally cannot bear this um so what love is actually is biological bribery it's there to make you start those relationships reward you for being in them and motivate you to keep on nurturing them now obviously love is much more complex than that but that's what its basic evolutionary purpose is is to make Mm. sure you stick around and obviously the first love was between mother and child yeah that's the first one that evolved and we need that particularly in human babies i mean you know You've got children, I've got children. We know how tiny babies are just so hard to look after. Yeah. You know, when you've had no sleep and they've screamed all night and you don't know what they want and it's really hard. That's what love's for. Love's to make sure you don't just leave the baby in the middle of a forest and go, do you know what, I'm not doing this. Mm. Um, So that's where love started and then it sort of spread out to other different sort of relationships that are important to us.
0: I remember the first time I experienced that personally as well is I had a fairly traumatic childbirth experience and a stay in hospital and a stint in hospital and had not had much time with my newborn baby and I remember specifically like the moment that I really felt it kick in whenever it was about 10 days later finally after getting home and then I remember it being very visceral yeah and it was like three o'clock in the morning something like that during a nappy change or something strange it just literally clicked and i was yeah. like oh my god that's fascinating yeah. and it was it was almost like it was like a warmth went through my whole body and yeah. it was something that hadn't kicked in yet and yeah. it was so bizarre to me that also i'd gone through all of that and i was like oh i would totally do this again in yeah. like two weeks and it's time. weird that isn't it <laughs> yeah and i was like god that that is my brain just taking over and yeah. everything kind of kicking in yeah. And you know,
1: pregnancy, I mean, you had a traumatic but I had a traumatic birth first time. And even though you know, but pregnancy is a massive flood of all these bonding hormones of, you know, oxytocin and dopamine and beta endorphin. So it primes women to build that bond at that very difficult stage and to deal with the pain of childbirth and the trauma of childbirth and still pick that child up and care for it I, I have exactly the same story I remember my newborn baby and she was screaming you know she had college screaming 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 and I was just there and I remember being on the phone to my mom going I don't know what to do I don't know what to do I don't know what to do and put the phone down and then suddenly something in me was like I just picked her up and I held her to her and I went we're gonna be okay mm. we're gonna be okay and it was that you know i will protect you i will encircle you and it will be all right and i remember that as well i think i think maybe quite a lot of mums remember the first time that happened
0: mm. um
1: but that is that is yeah this drive this love kicking in and going right you need to care for this child you need to create that bond so that this child survives essentially
0: mm. but there's something about growing love there isn't it because mm. for me you know that moment was not this instant thing that i think it's important for us to also say it was ten days later. Mm. You know, I think my, my my son was definitely um over a week old. And we also see that love grows in relationships. And I was listening to an interview just this week with Matthew Hussey and Stephen Bartlett, and he said, Matthew Hussey said, the one isn't something that is just there, it's something that we grow. Someone grows into the one. They aren't just the one. And I was just so thrilled to hear someone saying that on such a public platform because there is so much that's happening, which is growing in relationships, isn't there? It isn't just this instant thing. And we see that with couples and couple bonds as well. Absolutely. And we see it definitely. I mean,
1: one of my big sort of drums I kind of beat for fathers is I I think... More so than mothers. I think, I think many mothers and many fathers don't get that instant flood of love when their baby is born, particularly the first one. I think quite a lot of them are just, like, scared, to be honest. Mm. Um, and it takes time to come, but particularly for fathers, because mums do have a head start with all the pregnancy hormones and if you're breastfeeding, the, you know, the breastfeeding bonding hormones that come with that, men have to build their bonds with their babies through interaction, and that can take a good six months to get really deep. And that's mm. partly because of the developmental delay of the child who can't interact with you. And so I think it's really important we send the message out that love does develop and grow. And we know that looking at the hormone trajectory. So the hormones that underpin love in the first instance are very different to the ones that underpin long-term love. And you slowly sort of sort of phase into those long-term ones, which are much deeper and much more powerful. It's actually beta-endorphin, which is an opiate, which is addictive. Whereas oxytocin and dopamine are the ones that are there at the beginning. They're the ones mm. that are that really give you that motivational kick to start making the effort. But then
0: and we call oxytocin the love hormone, or well, the cuddle hormone? Or... We do,
1: we do call it that. It's a little over-egged oxytocin, to be absolutely honest with you. And the reason <laughs> for that is it's the easiest one to study. So it's mm-hmm. the one where we get the most studies of because the one that we studied at Oxford, beta endorphin, doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. So we can't just get some blood off someone and know it's been released, whereas mm-hmm. with oxytocin you can. So oxytocin is really critical at the start of a relationship because it lowers the inhibitions to starting the relationship. And it does that by quieting your amygdala, which is the fear centre of your brain. Uh, So it shuts that down a little bit. So all those really confidence-sapping fears quieten and so oxytocin is really important and dopamine is too because oxytocin is brilliant if you have oxytocin on its own and if you've breastfed you'll kind of know this you get really chilled and really like oh floaty lovely lovely uh, but if you just had oxytocin at the start you'd be so chilled you wouldn't actually make the effort for example to go across the bar and talk to the person you're attracted to so you need dopamine to give you a kick because that's it's your hormone you. of motivation mm. so they're really important at the beginning but actually it's beta endorphin that is the is the long-term love hormone So Mm. oxytocin and are still there, but they kind of go a little bit into the background, partly because they're actually quite short lived and humans can love for decades. Mm -hmm. And so they're not powerful enough to deal with human love. They underpin. The reason also why we think oxytocin is so important is because it's what underpins love in little tiny voles, which is where we found the idea that it was important. from. But voles are not a good model for humans. Um, (laughs) They have very different relationships. (laughs) So you have to study it in primates and humans. And when you look at primates and humans, it's beta endorphin. Mm -hmm. So that beautiful evolution of love and that change of love is partly hormonal. As you know, it's partly psychological as you build attachment relationships with the person. And, you know, relationships don't stay static. And that's something I think which you probably tell your clients all the time. But we know from, you know, they evolve, the people in them evolve, what people need from them evolve. And that's what's fascinating about studying relationships in the very, very long term. Is because they do, they change. They're like natural, organic beings. Mm. And understanding that psychologically and neurobiologically is is what I do, is to try
0: and understand what happens over the long term with Mm. the human relationship. And we know that when people orgasm and have sex, they have that boost of dopamine Mm. and oxytocin Mm. and other things but that gives that people that that glow doesn't it or people say that that falling asleep exhausted Mm. joyous feeling exactly that's Mm. oxytocin
1: that's Mm. oxytocin really chilling you down just getting rid of the cortisol just really but that orgasm issue is one of the reasons why we have to have beta endorphin is oxytocin again is is restricted quite tightly To reproductive relationships so in sex you get it with orgasm in childbirth you get loads of it because it's what induces childbirth and in breastfeeding and you get you do get some from hugging your friends and your family but the problem we have is humans unlike little tiny voles have lots of friends Mm. and they're platonic so we don't generally have sex with all our friends hopefully and we don't you know we don't Experience those sorts of reproductive relationships, so we need a, a hormone that underpins all those sorts of relationships that humans yeah. have, which other mammals don't, and that's where beta endorphin comes in because it, mm. it can underpin all of those.
0: And when we talk about all those other relationships, we can see that some people, even though, like as humans, we're social creatures, there are plenty of people who are single and satisfied, single and happy. And I think, I think it's really important that we bring the idea of singledom into conversations about love because they're pretty much always exclusively about couples and relationships. And we can see that we can still have other types of love. I know in Greek philosophy there were seven types of love. We can see that people can have love in different shapes and forms and that that is enough, isn't it? They don't need one big love or a romantic love or a sexual love in order to have that sense of love in their lives or that purpose of love in their lives or the benefit of love in their lives
1: yeah you've absolutely hit the nail on the head and that's partly why i wrote the book because we have this obsession with romantic love in the west you know uk us you know we are we see it as the pinnacle of achievement of love Mm. and we kind of place all the other sorts of love particularly friendships actually lower down the hierarchy and actually there is nothing in science that supports that view this privileging of romantic love is is kind of a it's kind of a Victorian thing, really, that romantic love is the ultimate source of love. And we, all, particularly women, have to achieve romantic love. Otherwise, yeah. you're a bit of a failure. Um, and this is just wrong, both biologically and sociologically today, actually, because biologically, your friends can provide all of that lovely neurobiological, psychological loveliness that you need from relationships, just as much as your romantic partner can have. In fact, they can be better at it. Because we did a study at Oxford years and years ago, where we looked at comparing what, particularly women, got from their romantic relationships and what they got from their best friendships, female best friendships. And women tend to be more emotionally intimate with their female best friends than they are with their sexual partner. And that's probably because there's always just a slight tension in romantic relationships. There's always a slight level of conflict because you are bringing together two people who not consciously, but will always just very slightly keep their eye on the horizon for something better. Mm. Whereas in your friendships... It's just relaxed. Yeah. It's just you don't judge me. And I, I, I do a whole chapter on friendship in the book because I wanted to show people how powerful it is. And also for women, quite often I get asked by women, particularly ones who are perfectly happy single, saying, oh, my God, literally, everybody is constantly trying to, you know, match me up. Tell me that, you know, I'll get I'll find the right person. in. I don't want to find the right person. I'm fine. And they, but then they go, but then I worry, actually, are they right? Do I need to have this? And you're like, no, because you're in this lucky, lucky situation in the 21st century where you don't need to be married or in a romantic relationship for your financial protection, for your social status. That doesn't exist anymore. Luckily for women in the West, you can be very independent financially and protect yourself. You don't need mm-hmm. you know, a part of that. You can choose not to have children. So you can choose not to have that parental love in your life if you wish to. Yeah. But you get rid of your friends at your peril. You mm. really do. Because you need to have that healthy love in your life to support all that mental and physical health goodness. Yeah. So do not ditch your friends. Your <laughs> friends are really critical. And that's kind of one of the one of the stories of the book is we have this spectrum of love. We're so lucky as a species. We're the only one that gets this really broad spectrum in our lives. You know, we can even love God. Or we know people who, who are love God and love, you know, and have religious love in their lives. They are very healthy and very physically and mentally healthy. They Mm. get that from there. And so you don't have to have romantic love. It's great. I'm not doing it down. But I think the pressure to find it and to maintain it when it's not good for you
0: is too high. Mm. And we live in such a couple centric society that we assume the norm is to couple up.
1: Yeah, you do. And everything's about that. If you think, I I was asked to review a dating show on Netflix the other day and I couldn't remember the name of it which is awful, isn't it? So I just searched dating. There are so many dating shows Mm. on Netflix. All the messages we get, you know, just with the dating apps, everything is about you've got to find someone, you've got to find someone, you've got to find someone. Mm. And that's, you know, what we always ask people, you know, do you have a partner? And I just think it's hard for people either that they really desperately want that and can't find it. That's really hard. But also for these people who like say, well, that's not for I'm me, fine. I'm yeah. fine thanks and then we think oh they're not really, they're just being strong Yeah. And, and, and they're not necessarily I mean I spoke to aromantics for the book which was really interesting and they're a group we don't hear about a lot from, partly because they always get sort of misunderstood yeah. but they're people who don't feel romantic love they're quite often asexual as well and they are sort of whenever anybody sort of meets them they always think they're really cold because oh no they don't love anyone no They love loads of people. They love their family. They love their friends. They might love their dog, their god, whatever it might be. They just don't feel romantic love. Mm. And that's really hard. And they're fine with it. And they're completely fine with it. It's just hard to operate in a world where everybody is obsessed. Can you imagine operating in a world where everybody's talking in this language that you don't have? Mm. And, you know, or people will say to them, oh, you just haven't
0: met the right person yeah. yet. Everyone's trying to discount your identity. Yeah, discount
1: it. Your experience and your identity. And that's really hard. And that sums up, I think, our obsessions.
0: Mm. And I think that was one of the questions I had for you, was all we have to do is look at our TVs, like Love is Blind, Love Island. I mean, I know that you were one of the experts on um, Married at First mm. Sight. But you're right. It is the focus of... And then there's... um. News shows at the moment. I think it's called Temptation Island and, and things like that, where we're constantly fascinated and watching people being tested in love. You know, will they? Won't they? Is it strong enough? Is it not? Is it about sex? Is it about love? And I think we're we're constantly kind of trying to unravel this or look for clues or look for the answers, aren't we? Where for me, I, this is something I kind of feel like I say a lot, but. I feel like we're always trying to objectively measure something which is very subjective. And of course, there might be ways that we can consider it objectively, but we can't break away from this biopsychosocial approach, which is understanding all of the different elements that are going on and how they relate to each other.
1: Absolutely. And again, that's that's again why I wrote the book, because I wanted to bring those all together. As an anthropologist, my job is to understand you know, the behaviour I'm seeing or the attribute or the trait. And love is so multifactorial. And... I think we do, particularly people turn to me, which is I'm always a massive disappointment <laughs> for the answer. So mm. could you give me the answer? So I, will, I do quite a lot of public engagement talks to people and I get a lot, particularly of young women at these talks. And quite often they'll say to me, so what's the timetable? So, okay, I've been going out for, for this point. So has the attraction stage, how have I gone going into the love stage? And when do I start building an attachment? And when do I do this? And it's like, there's not a formula. Yeah. There isn't, I'm so sorry, there is not a formula. I can't give you... The magic number that you've got to do it for this many days and do this many maintenance behaviors and do this many things and it'll be fine Mm
0: -hmm. and I think
1: that's why we struggle with love because we want to control it we want to know how to predict it because it can be painful and it can be difficult and but we, we will never know that. And I actually think that's a good thing. And that, in a way, sums up why we're so obsessed with it, I think, and why we write so many songs and there's so much art about it. It's all trying to explain what it is. And, we, you know, I can give you many, many objective measures that we use to measure love. And certainly there are things we know now about love which we didn't know 10 or 20 years ago. And that's great because it particularly helps people who struggle. Mm-hmm. But there's this massive bit over <clears throat> over here which we will never know, and that's you. We will never understand you completely. And humans are brilliant because I love studying them because you think you've got them pinned down, you go, right, I've worked it that. And then they do something completely left field, which you didn't imagine they were going to do at all because mm. we're so complex. There are so many things that are fed into how you experience love. Yeah. And, you know, many, many things. There will be the biological, your genes do, certainly, but your upbringing is really important your culture is really important the rules you were told when you were younger about what's acceptable what's not acceptable the messages you get from media you know the inputs of your family and friends in terms of commenting on the person you've chosen or whatever mm. it might be or the way you parent your children or you know and there is so much input that i always say this at the start of my my um talks is there are universal aspects of love and we will talk about those we will talk about the neurochemistry we will talk about you know what happens in your brain when you fall in love But there are so many things that lead to individual variation. And to me, that's the interesting bit. So why do I experience love differently to how you experience love? Mm. And are we even talking about the same thing?
0: (laughs) You know, Because (laughs) I say, I love
1: my husband and you will say, I love my husband. But actually, are
0: they the same thing? Yeah, we'll never know. We will never know. We will actually never know the answer to that question. Mm. And we also have metacognition as humans. So we think about Our thinking. So Mm. we're not just having our thoughts, but we're also thinking, okay, what does that mean that I'm having that? We're constantly reflecting
1: and digging and trying to understand and trying to unpick and all these sort of things. And, you know, I'm sure that's healthy in some circumstances, but sometimes it does get stuck in the most awful mess because there isn't an answer at the end. Mm. it's what you're comfortable with and what so I always talk about attachment when I give talks because that's obviously one of the major individual things so attachment as I'm sure you know but maybe your listeners don't attachment relationships are developmentally crucial and so you have one with your carers when you were young. You have one with your your children will attach to you in some way. You know you you will have one with your lover, uh, but maybe not all your lovers actually. And with maybe your close friends, and they're really really critical. And we all attach in slightly different ways. And that's one of the things that individually affects how we experience love and 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 how we behave. But what I say to people, I always bring up this grid of romantic attachment, and you can see everybody placing themselves and then panicking because they don't like yeah. where they are. And I go, you know it, it's There isn't a wrong one. Mm-hmm. You know, if you are happy with where you are sitting, then all power to you. That's great. It's only when you're unhappy or you think it's not helpful or it's inhibiting you in some way, then we need to talk about it. Yeah. But actually, there's no rule that says you have to be this kind of person and you have to behave in this way and feel this way about your relationship.
0: Definitely. The conversation around non-monogamy is happening a lot at the moment and there's also... very big conversation at the moment which is about sex droughts or people having less sex and the first thing that I put at the front of every conversation is the people who come to me are the people who are not happy with where they're at or the people who want to change where they're at because that's why people seek psychosexual therapy so I'm only working with my experience of and you know obviously I talk to hundreds of people and through research I'm doing or people I'm talking to or events who are not unhappy and the people that I connect with but the people who are coming to the therapy room are people who want to change something or people who are looking to feel a different way or to do something a different way or to change their awareness of it and there is a whole spectrum of people who are experiencing those things who are fine with it and I think that that is one of the things that we also need maybe the the whole place of This cultural shift or societal shift is about moving us all to a place of more accepting more that we should be accepting everyone's differences. I think this homogenous idea of sameness that applies to sex and relationships is where so many people get stuck. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, it's decided that we should do it this way or we should do it that way.
1: And actually, again, what's amazing about humans is actually if you allow us to be ourselves and just remove those little, those cultural constraints a little bit about like monogamy, you know, in the West in particular, monogamy is like the preeminent way of being in a, in a relationship, mm. romantic relationship. And most of that is about society. It evolved monogamy mostly as a form of societal control. So the reason why it's in all our legal systems and it's in all our religions and it's in all our cultural lessons is because, the powers that be decided that if we just let everybody do exactly what they want from a love and such, it would be chaos. And you can't predict what everyone's going to do. And a lot about being at the top of the hierarchy is maintaining your position in the hierarchy. And the one way you do that is by trying to impose rules, which means you know what everyone's doing so they can't mm-hmm. usurp you. And one of those is monogamy. So humans are sort of monogamous. They're certainly mono- monogamous when it comes to reproduction for greater or lesser periods of time so the best way in a way for a child to survive is to have lots of people inputting into it and the way it works from an evolutionary point of view is we tend to end up with monogamy when we have investing fathers because the father wants to ensure that that child he's investing in is his so we get a thing called mate guarding which in humans comes out as monogamy so Mm -hmm. i stick by your side because i need to know that this child i'm helping to raise which i have to help to raise or it won't survive um is mine Mm -hmm. So you get periods of monogamy, but you might, that doesn't necessarily have to last beyond five, six, seven years, actually. And then at that point, you know, other people can input into that child. So, but what we've imposed is this lifelong monogamy based upon marriage, which Mm -hmm. is a cultural imposition on a biological process, uh, which constrains people. But nobody, first of all, ever thought that we would live this long, I don't think. So you've suddenly got this situation where people are in monogamous relationships for decades. And that's an entirely cultural thing. That's not really something that's that's predicated by biology at all. So we're starting to explore that and we're starting to explore the idea of consensual non-monogamy. So polyamory, for example, and mm. in the book, I do a whole chapter on Exclusivity, or not exclusivity, and about monogamy, and about whether really we are a monogamous species. And actually, for some people, things like polyamory work. Now, I hold my hands up; wouldn't work for me. Far too jealous, and also far too tired. But, <laughs> um, but for many people, it works really well. Yeah. And I spoke to many, particularly women, actually. And I spoke to many women about being polyamorous. Um, so I think, as you say, we just need to loosen the restrictions of what we think is acceptable and just look at this spectrum of possibility. Mm. Like with my aromantic people, they want platonic life partnerships. And what that is, is they want someone to grow old with. They want a companion. They might even want someone to have children with, with assisted fertility. They just don't want it based on romantic love. So this new idea of platonic life partnerships is emerging, where you actually couple up with someone who you platonically, deeply love. And that's the basis of rearing children or just having a companion in your life. Mm. And I think we have to open all this up a bit and just be a little bit more aware that we are a complex species. And this idea, you know, this idea of monogamy is mul- is mostly a cultural construct, actually. Mm.
0: And it's changing, isn't it? And my favourite quote about monogamy is from Esther Perel. And she said, monogamy used to be one person for a lifetime and now it means one person at a time. Yeah. And... Also, I think we're seeing shifts socially. So the no the no fault divorce yeah was just introduced in the UK, and those are social shifts. I think which are I don't want to say allowing people more easily to exit monogamy, but it's it's the first changing the law is the first way to it being really socially acceptable. And divorce is not a taboo topic anymore. Breakups are not a taboo. Anymore. And I think that in introducing things like that, we are saying, yeah, legally, we're actually saying it's okay. And it's not a failure to end one relationship and start another. Exactly. And we're actually, it's what you said at the beginning about this this idea of, of some, you know,
1: biology and culture being a little bit mismatched where. Our biology is to, yeah, is to be, as Esther says, maybe monogamous but one after the other rather than for, like, 40 years. And she's right. But what, we've tried, what we're hopefully trying to do is trying to shape our culture and our rules a little bit around who we actually are mm. biologically. And biologically, we are not that person who necessarily sticks around for 50 years. Mm. Um, I mean, it's fine. I don't know whether these will ever take off, but somebody recently, a journalist, ran me up about beta marriage. And beta marriage, as I'm sure you know, is like beta testing where you – You know, you decide you're going to be married for a period of time, maybe four or five years. And at the end of that, you reassess, do you want to be there? And if you don't want to be there, you just have a clean break and you walk away. And there's no big divorce. It's like a short term contract. Mm. And, you know, this came up in the 70s as well. And it's <clears throat> read its head again as a possible solution to long-term marriage. Um, I'm not sure it necessarily is, but <laughs> it's 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 starting these conversations again about, well, what do we want? How do we want these relationships to go? Mm. And actually, in a way, it's about reducing the rules and saying, well, for some people, 70 years of
0: marriage works. But for some people, it really doesn't. Yeah. And we need to acknowledge that. it It does work for some people. And I think one of the the frameworks that I really like is that in long-term relationships, we don't think that it should be the same the whole way through, but we look at it as kind of multiple different relationships with the same person, and that's something that I I just really align with. It's something I can see personally, you know, feel personally, but also professionally, and we see that couples can move through these different stages and phases together and that actually in framing it with that understanding it again takes away some of the negativity, which is, oh, we changed. Because the most natural thing as we progress through our lives would be to change. And actually, why are we not having that as a conversation? But I suppose what we're also saying is, here we're talking about all the positives of love. And I know that something that you've written about is the darker side of love. And it's something that should be a part of this conversation because we are trying to play devil's advocate or kind of open up thinking or perspectives but love can have a dark side can't it it can go wrong it can become negative
1: yeah it completely can and and again that was a, a kind of purpose in the work I do is that I think we talk a lot about love and love is overwhelmingly a positive thing for most people It's an amazing thing and we're very lucky to experience, I think. But the problem with our visceral need for love, the fact that love is so integrated into our survival, so integrated into our physical and mental health, and so driven by a set of addictive chemicals, which if we don't get them, we tend to crave in a really full addictive way, Mm. means that love can then be used to control you. Because you can, if you know somebody is viscerally, requires you in their life and needs you, then you can use that knowledge to manipulate them, to coerce them, to abuse them. And what separates is the definite, definite thing that separates human love from animal love is that we are the only species that uses love to manipulate. No other Mm. animal species uses the knowledge that you really need me in your life Mm -hmm. to make somebody else do something. And that, that's why I wanted to ch- write a chapter on it in the book about love as control. Because ultimately, love is about control. Love is the thing that evolution came up with to control us, to make sure that we stuck in our survival-critical relationships and we pass those really important genes down the generations. Mm-hmm. So love ultimately is a, is a form of biological control. But what we've done as humans is we've taken that... And we we then have used that to make people, coerce people. And if you listen to the narratives of, of people who are in relationships with intimate partner violence, and again, I quote a really interesting study in the book about, and you talk to this, a very good study done on women who are in abusive relationships, saying to them, you know, okay, what is love? What does a loving relationship look like to you? And they will explain to you whatever, you know, trust, support, um, you know, making you feel confident to be out on your own and doing things. So they know what a loving relationship is. And then you say to them, okay, um, what's the love in your relationship like? And then they will say, well, you know, I'm scared. I'm, you know, uh, he, you know, uses his love to make me do things. He uses threats of violence to make me do things. He restricts my access to medical care or, or, you know, gynecological care. He tells me what I have to wear. And they go, Mm. okay, so where is the love in your relationship? Do you love your partner? Yes, I do love my partner. And he loves me. And now for us, maybe that's quite challenging because we think, well, and quite often I, I will always ask people and interview them, um, can love ever be negative?
0: Yeah.
1: And it's, a 50, 50, it's 50% of people say no because if it's negative, it's not love. Which is interesting. 50% yeah. will say, well, yes, because there's jealousy and stuff like that. And it can be quite nasty. Or you can find that love is not good for you mentally, you know, because maybe you give over all your needs to somebody else. And da, da, da. So some people recognise it. But then when you say, well, these women think they're in love, and they go, no, they're not. And you go, well, they say they are. And we all have the right to define our love mm. the way we want to. You know, I accept your definition of love. You say you're in love, fine. And these women are saying that. And I think that's really challenging, to the idea of what love actually is.
0: Do you think that's because we like and have all been taught that love is the most aspirational, perfect Mm. thing that everything else comes out of? Yeah. We've all been told that love is pure and love love is
1: butterflies and little birds tweeting and it's all wonderful. And I think partly we've got the romantic narrative to blame for this, particularly in romantic relationships about what love is. Um, because love isn't that necessarily love has, is a spectrum from the light to the dark. And there is a very dark aspect to love. Hmm. Um, and again, using, you know, using, I, I spoke to a lot of men who experienced domestic violence as well for the book. And they were talking about, you know, the love for their children being used against them, you know, that you have to stay with me or you have to do this or you have to do what I say or else you'll never see your children again. Hmm. And that keeps them in the relationship yeah. because they know that the courts are stacked against them, for example. So love is a spectrum and we have to acknowledge that. We have to acknowledge the role it has in the darker elements of human behaviour, I think.
0: And we talk about love as unconditional all the time, but love can also be conditional.
1: Oh, love is hugely conditional. I think it's very hard to say, possibly the only true unconditional love, and not all of this type of love is unconditional, is, is parental love. Mm. but you will also meet parents where their love for their children is conditional yeah definitely um so most love is conditional Mm. it's on i will stick with you as long as you behave in this we're not consciously but you behave in this way most people have a line yeah and possibly one of the things in in abusive relationships is maybe for these women or men the line is maybe further on than it would be for you or me so we would go okay uh uh-uh Whereas these people are like, no, but I, and and quite a lot of women in this study believe that their unconditional love for their partner would change them. Yeah. So I need to check, I need to save him. And my love will save him and he will change because he's a good person. And they feel that the power of their love is the thing that will fix him.
0: Mm.
1: And so, you know, it's a complicated story, human love.
0: Yeah, really complicated.
1: It's not always actually about survival. In some cases, love will actually. You know, negatively impact your survival.
0: Mm. And I think that it's a really important aspect of this conversation because things like coercive control and the you know the seven types of domestic violence are starting to get more publicly discussed and more publicly noticed. But for lots of people, they may have been dealing with that for a really long time and never heard anyone talk about it or say it or acknowledge it or they may have grown up with that as their model of love and so not think that that is how it should be.
1: I completely agree with you. And I think particularly when you've got someone in a coercive relationship saying, you know, I'm controlling what you wear because I love you. I don't want you to embarrass yourself in public with what you're wearing or I'm, you know, I'm controlling your diet because, you know, I I want you to be healthy and I love you. I mean, there's one guy who was being abused by his female partner who she really restricted his diet to the extent that he was basically anorexic and he used to have to hide food in the boot of his car. And once she had gone to work, he would get something out of the boot of his car. But that was all about, you know, you ne- I want you to live a long time, so I want you to be healthy. And so you can quite easily read that as, oh, they're really interested in me and they really do love me and they're concerned for my health. And I think, you know, until people have come up with the idea of coercive control, which isn't being punched, or there's no physical sign of injury, mm. um, I think a lot of people were in those relationships and actually didn't realise they were.
0: Mm.
1: Um, and I think it's important that we've, that we've recognised that now, actually. Yeah. Um
0: Yeah, I think it's critical that we have. For me, understanding that there is a spectrum to everything in life is a massive part of particularly all the conversations I feel like I'm having. You know, we don't have this one-size-fits-all approach to anything, but particularly when it comes to sex and relationships, we seem to have clung on to it, I think, a bit longer than we should have done or more than we have other aspects of our lives. And, But when we're thinking about this changing context social context obviously the internet has massively changed how so many people meet Mm. and for me I guess I'm wondering what your thoughts are on things like dating apps Mm. because we are we're assessing people aren't we we're through I don't know basic means yeah and I suppose it also probably ties into my question earlier about all the TV shows, things like Love is Blind or Married at First, you know, because we are, but with dating apps, we're trying to assess, we're trying to almost, it feels like we're almost trying to do the first step and the filtering system. But we can't ever understand what the in-person attraction or feeling might be by verifying that first step through a screen or can we?
1: No, Do you think we can kind of filter
0: no. out the attraction thing? No, you can't. You I, I, you
1: definitely can't get a true sense of whether you're attracted to somebody through a screen. And particularly mm-hmm. with the limited information some of the apps actually ask for. So they've reduced it down and down and down and down. And that's an idea of sort of efficiency. We're a bit obsessed with efficiency in our world. Um, and the idea that, you know, you can do all these things really efficiently, efficiently and filter it down and you'll end up with, you know, the perfect partner. I think dating apps, they have had their... Okay, there are positive sides to dating apps. I think they've increased the pool of selection, definitely. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been important for those particularly young people who maybe have an identity or a sexuality which is in the minority. And it's, you know, if you live in a small village in the Highlands of Scotland and you identify as non-binary or you are bisexual or pansexual or whatever it might be, it's going to be pretty damn hard to identify in your community Mm. who is going to be along for that ride. I think so in those areas, I think it's really opened that pool. And I think that's great because you can find other people like you. The problem we have is, first of all, the pool's become too big for a lot of people. So you have the paradox of choice. And the paradox of choice is we're really good at taking choices with a limited number of options. And I always use the analogy of a toddler. So if you take a toddler into a a sweet shop and you say, OK, and you offer them two sorts of sweets and you say, you can have this one or you can have this one. Okay, after a bit of, oh, can't I have both of them? You will generally end up with one of them. If Mm. you take them into the sweet shop you say you can literally have anything you want, they'll have a tantrum because the sheer amount of information and the the pressure of taking a decision from that many options is too much. And we like that as adults. So what we tend to do on dating apps is we tend to just carry on flicking and we Mm. procrastinate. And we don't really do anything and then the other thing that happens is okay you go on a date with somebody but after 20 minutes you think oh they're not that great and actually there are a hundred million other options out there so I think I'll ditch this now and go back and see if there's something better and that is not how we evolved to date you know mm-hmm. we evolved to date taking the time to get to know somebody and then saying actually this person is all right, right and we've all got stories I know the first time I met my husband I thought he was an absolute arse <laughs> literally I thought he was patronising and arrogant and just awful. And it actually took a good you know, few weeks of getting to know him and getting maybe past that mm. to actually find out, actually, I, I fancied him. Yeah, And it's that kind of thing. And also, your brain is a dating machine, so it doesn't matter. I honestly don't think that will ever build an algorithm that is as good as your brain as at selecting somebody. Because when you meet mm. somebody for the first time, you're taking in all this sensory information, all your senses are engaged in taking in information about this person. So, you know, sense of sight, what do they look like, all those important biological markers of genetic strength, all that kind of stuff, you know, looking at signs for fertility, you know, good health, all of that. You know, you're listening out, what's the tone of voice like, what are they talking about? The brain, I genuinely believe, is the sexiest organ in your body. It tells us so much about who you are and your quality as a mate. So Mm -hmm. I'm listening to what you're saying, I'm listening to your tone of voice. As a woman, you're smelling because we can smell genetic compatibility or incompatibility men can't but women can so we're smelling you know we're using the sense of touch to generate hormones all of these different things are really important they're then going into this massive algorithm in your brain completely unconscious which in a nanosecond will decide whether or not you're attracted to this person if you're attracted to this person the oxytocin and dopamine kick off you get that lovely you know motivation to go and talk to them that lovely chilling of the oxytocin and off you go and, and it's really amazing. Also, in there, you've got theory of mind, mentalizing, the ability to spot people who are dodgy. Yeah. Uh, and you need to be good at that because you do not want to waste good time and energy on investing in a relationship with someone who's basically going to screw you over, they're going to cheat, they're lying to you, whatever it might be.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: None of these things work online. Mm. Okay, so you get, you know, maybe, you know, obviously from the ones that use photographs, you maybe get the visual element, but do you? Because actually, is the photograph accurate? Has it been filtered? Can your algorithm really act upon that? You're getting nothing, no theory of mind. You can't tell if this person's a good person or a bad person. Mm. You're getting none of the other sensory input. So you are deciding whether you're attracted to somebody on maybe three or four percent of the input you would get if you were in the room with them. Yeah. So no, I don't think you can decide whether you're attracted to somebody using a dating app. You Mm -hmm. can maybe look at them and think, oh, they look interesting or they share my interests. That's nice. But no, you cannot do the... And you certainly do not get the dopamine or oxytocin that are going to help you actually start interacting. So I always say to people, you know, dating apps are great for filtering the field, maybe. Um, They're good if you feel that you're in, like, for the LGBTQ plus community, they can be quite helpful in finding people in the same sort of area as you. So they're quite good. But you need to get in the room with the person as quickly as you can. Mm-hmm. Because only then will your wonderful, powerful brain be able to... And this has evolved for millions of years, this this brain. It's yeah. really good at doing this. You know, it's much better than Tinder at doing this for you. And I think you need to let it do what it's good at. Mm. Um And it's a little bit of a sign of maybe innovation going what we think much more quickly than biological evolution is. But it's also, I'm afraid, at the moment, we can't innovate to the level of standard that the brain can do. Yeah. We just can't.
0: Mm. And
1: so I think, and that's why I think sometimes young people have been sold a bit of a pup. And again, I get a lot of them at my, <laughs> my talks saying, I'm just sick of online dating. Yeah. Because it doesn't work. And it's like, well, that's because you're not really evolved to date like that. Mm. I'm afraid. So is the advice, get in
0: the room and see how
1: you feel with that person? See how you feel. Go with your instinct. Go with your gut instinct. Get to know them. Let their wonderful brain show you who they are. Talk to them about, you know, all these different things and give it a chance. Mm. Because after 20 seconds, you know, I have a mate who I love dearly and he's desperate to find a long term partner. And that's lovely. But he will go on five dates in a weekend. And I've actually rather bizarrely been on one of these dates with him. It's a very long story. And uh, he literally gave her 20 minutes. And then he went, no, it's not going to work. I was like, how can you possibly know that after 20 minutes? Mm. And I said, well, what, you know, was it an instant, like, absolute disgust? Did you recoil and in- Oh, no, no, she seemed really nice and we had a lot in common, but no. I was like, you can't know that after 20 minutes. I'm sorry. So do you think that's to do with our expectations of love? I think it is. And I think it's to do with our expectations, particularly from romantic love, where we've been told people talk a lot about chemistry
0: or yes. there was no spark. Yes.
1: Sometimes there is a spark, but actually that spark is no prediction of whether that is going to be a long-term relationship. That's lust, mate. Mm. <laughs> and that doesn't mean that's going to last. So I wouldn't go too strong on the chemical, strong chemical reaction, mm. actually. And what is the difference, then, between love and lust? Lust is unconscious. It's, it's in the limbic area of your brain, mm-hmm. and it's, it's highly driven by your hypothalamus, which is where your sex hormones are. Mm-hmm. Lust is not love. Love is something that evolves over a, a longer period and it's based upon attachment and it's based upon beta endorphin and mm-hmm. it's based upon a conscious contemplation of the person. And it's also based upon this wonderful, wonderful, which I want everyone to know about, um, system known as biobehavioral synchrony, which I write about in the book. Um, and just very briefly, I'll tell you what it is. So, people who are in long term love, it happens between parents and children, it happens between lovers, it's currently been tested to see whether it happens between close friends. When you are with somebody who you're in love with, you, have, you mirror each other's body movements. Mm-hmm. And we know that. Everybody knows yeah. that. You can see that. But if you look inside the body itself, those, that bodily synchrony is actually underpinned by physiological synchrony. So your heart rate, your body temperature, uh, and your blood pressure come into synchrony. Mm. And then if we look in the brain, we see synchrony within the brain. So we see synchrony in brain activation. And we also see synchrony in, in neurochemical release. So your brains are actually in synchrony. And what this shows you is that love is so critical to your longevity, your survival, your life satisfaction, all those different things, your health, that evolution has seen fit to recruit every single mechanism in your body to make sure you are as close to that person as possible. And actually, if we look at it from an organism system sort of perspective, two people actually become one organism because all those bodily mechanisms are coming together. Um, And when people say to me, is there such a thing as soulmates? You know how some people say, oh, my God, this person is my soulmate? Yeah. I don't believe there's only ever one soulmate. There's no such thing as the one. But I do believe in the concept of feeling so close to that person that your souls merge. And I think that's probably what biobehavioral synchrony is. Mm. Two organisms become one. And that is love. Who knew that the Spice Girls were right all this time? Absolutely. (laughs) Who who knew? Um, And that's what I say to people. So you don't get that with lust. Lust is very much an unconscious sexual drive.
0: Mm. And I suppose it makes sense, doesn't it? And I suppose particularly perhaps when we see people living together or building a home together or a family together, that they are working together as a unit. Mm. I was thinking how... Interesting that we have that, like, kind of working together, but then also these theories about things like opposites attract. Mm. I think the thing that I took from what you just said is this growing together and this idea of development and growth and nurture and it being slow and something I always remember someone talking about. I can't remember who it was. But it was this idea that we move, perhaps, in long-term relationships from being in love to loving Mm. And that's also fine. So we're moving through these different stages. Yeah. Well, that's that's known as companionate love. So you go from sort of lust, passion,
1: attraction to what we would call companionate love,
0: Mm.
1: which is a calmer, solider... Which is the bit that some people find really boring. So you know mm-hmm. you've got, you know, I think we all know people who love that passionate, lustful, race, chase bit of of the beginning of a relationship. But actually when it gets companionate, it's like, oh, spit a bit dull. Um, that's companionate love. And it is it is a different, different experience mm. than the early stages of love, definitely.
0: And so do you think then when we're talking about the evolution of love, if we're summarising... The conversation that we've had, or as a topic, I mean, for me, I feel like we could almost have this conversation for about a week. <laughs> like it's almost <laughs> like a, we almost need like a seven part series of like love through the evolution. Yes, <laughs> In order to maybe that we'll do a mini series on the evolution of love, perhaps. But is that, and even if we're using evolutionary language, this idea that we are kind of adapting and changing, and I mean, adapting really for me is the word I think that keeps coming up is. Is the way that we love or are we learning to love in a way that's adapting to our environments? Does it feel like we're still fighting that a bit? Does it feel like the social ideas about love that are imposed on us, we have to kind of adapt to, but it's not really working? I, mean, I don't really know if there's like a question that I have, <laughs> but more of a, yeah, more of like a rounding up. We obviously know that love is critical and what you're saying, but it's not the... Only one type of love has to be critical.
1: Yeah, exactly. So love love is critical. If you don't have love in your life, you really are going to be at a, at a severe detriment. We know that. We know that from the stats from people who can't maintain healthy relationships. We know that from children who are brought up in insecure attachments to their parents in neglectful environments, all those sorts of things. We know that that leads to increased possibility of addiction, increased antisocial behaviour, increased poor mental health going forward. We know all these things. Um, so, yes, love is critical, but romantic love is not critical, necessarily. In the West, I will say this. Our fundamental biology of love has not changed and will not change, actually, and our drivers will not change, for example, until something like feminism has become a universal attribute of the world and has been embedded for a long time. So, uh, people always say to me, "Oh my God, you know the evolution of love sounds awfully sexist." And it's well, it is awfully sexist, I suppose, from a feminist perspective. But I'm afraid feminism hasn't actually gone all the way around the world. Many women still rely on being married for some financial support and for social status, and indeed, definitely for having children. Mm. Um, so. That's not going to change. I think there is there is a tension between the social and the biological. Certainly the social imposition of rules upon what is a biological phenomenon has made it very difficult and has made many people fight against those social restraints. So the biological evolution of love hasn't really changed. The social side of it is definitely changing, I think. And that is what is evolving. And that is in the West anyway, is what is changing. And we're starting to recognise maybe a way to try and balance that tension between the
0: biological and social, and how we can get them to meld a little easier, I think. Mm. And it sounds like, from what you're saying, we can't understand one without the other. You
1: really, really can't. You really can't. You can't sit exclusively within this biological camp or the sociological camp. I think maybe I'm lucky as an anthropologist, because as an anthropologist, you're trained in both dimensions. So I did biological anthropology and social anthropology. Mm. Um, And I might do most of my research at the biological end personally, but the sociological never leaves you, because we are a social species. We are a cultural species. And so to understand human love, you have to look at both of them.
0: I mean, Anna, what an amazing place for us to finish this. And the book, I mean, I'm imagining a lot of people are going to be going straight out (laughs) and ordering the book, but really is including all of these conversations, isn't it? And it's called Why We Love. like It's Mm. the understanding of why, as humans, we want to love, are primed to love are so fascinated by love
1: absolutely yeah it's it's about why we love it's also how we love so all that biology but also all that sociology comes into it and 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 who we love so you know this spectrum of of people and beings that we get to love and and actually in one sense the most fun bit of the um book i found actually was these growing areas of research so like looking at parasocial love which is love for avatars and celebrities (laughs) Um, we haven't whacked those people in the scanner yet, but we, we we want to. And looking really far forward about the impact of AI on love, and and whether we will ever have close relationships with humanoid robots, for example. And I'm not necessarily talking about sex robots, which people always think I'm talking about. But you know, would we have companion robots for elderly people and all that kind of thing? And it's so that it's 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 a field that constantly asks questions mm. because it's so fundamental to who we are.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sexual Wellness Sessions. If you'd like to join us for more conversations, you can click subscribe on either Apple or Spotify podcasts. And if you have a moment, please leave us a review.